All right, 1 Corinthians chapter 2. I will be reading the first five verses. So Paul writes, And I, brethren, when I came to you, did not come with excellence of speech or of wisdom, declaring to you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I was with you in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. So last time, of course, we looked at the last section in chapter 1, right? Verses 26 through 31. As we uh, continue this discussion, really, it's more of like a rebuke from Paul to the church in Corinth over the divisions that they had suffered in the church. And after stating the case, I should say, in verses 10 through 17, where he lays out what he has heard from Chloe's household, this report that there are divisions in the church, he then begins to apply the medicine of the gospel how the gospel has the power that surpasses anything human wisdom can come up with. But given the Corinthians' love of philosophy and their love of sophistry, it is not a surprise uh, that these or that those within the church would sort of begin to divide along these lines of their favorite teachers. But in verses chapter one, verse eighteen through chapter two, verse five. Paul's going to lay out three ways in which God's wisdom surpasses human wisdom. And we saw a couple weeks back in verses 18 through 25 how the message of the cross, the message of the cross is foolish to those who are perishing. This message of a dying and arising God man makes no sense to the Greek mind. This message of a crucified Messiah is scandalous to the Jewish mind. And moreover, it is through this foolish and scandalous message that God then confounds the wisdom of the world. He uses this foolish message to put to shame the the wisdom of the world and to make nothing the strength of the world. The Gospel is not something that natural man would understand, so he rejects it. Then in verses 26 through 31, which we saw last week, Paul shifts his focus from the message to the recipients of the message and shows how the recipients of the message also confound the wisdom of the world. He points to them and says, consider or look at your calling. How not many of you are wise, how not many of you are strong, how not many of you are noble. Just look at yourselves. You're exactly... A collection, you're not exactly a collection of the who's who in the town of Corinth. You're the leftovers, you're the refuse, you're the part that even the dog won't eat the scraps off the plate. That's kind of what he's saying to them. You are the foolish ones and the weak ones that put to shame the wisdom and the might of the Corinthians. You're lowly, you're weak, and you're foolish, and you are exactly the type of people God wants to confound the wise and the mighty and the noble. Your kids playing pickup football or whatever on a Saturday afternoon and you're choosing teams and you've got two captains and you're choosing teams 
The Corinthians would be the kid sitting there that no one wants, but someone has to take him. And they're like, oh, you know, I don't want him on my team. How? It's like, well, I don't want him on my team. It's your choice. You have to take him. That's what the Corinthians would be. They would be the kid that no one wants on their pickup football team. And all of this is for the purpose that no one will be able to boast before God. And the reason, because all glory belongs to God. He's going to choose these weak and foolish people to confound the wisdom of the world so that you cannot boast or glory in something that you've done to get there. And now as we head now into our passage here this morning, this brings us now to the third argument that Paul uses to combat their divisive hearts. So he tells them first, consider the foolishness of the message. Then consider the foolishness of the recipients. Now, consider the foolishness of the messenger. He turns to himself and says, look at me. (laughs) I'm really nothing special either. Yet, it is through the power of the Gospel that God used my preaching, my teaching, to bring you to faith. So as we look at this passage, we're going to see three things. Uh, Verse 1, we're going to see not in wisdom. That's how Paul came to them. He didn't come to them in wisdom. We're going to see the content of his message in verse 2, nothing but Christ. And then how the power of the message is in the Spirit, not not in himself. It is in, in the Spirit and power. That's how he came to them. Not in his own wisdom, but in Spirit and in power, verses 3 through 5. So unlike the philosophers and sophists of Corinth, Paul will claim that all he does is simp- all he wants to do is simply preach. He just wants to declare. He just wants to herald the message of Christ crucified. That's all he wants to do. That's his job, is to proclaim this message. Not to try to convince you or persuade you with his own clever witticisms or anything like that. So let's first look at verse 1 here. Uh, Paul, now turning from the recipients of the message, begins to focus on the messenger of the message in verse 1 where he says, And I, brethren, when I came to you, did not come with excellence of speech or of wisdom declaring to you the testimony of God. And when he says here, and I, Paul signals he, he is shifting from the Corinthians that he spoke about in verses 26 through 31 of chapter 1, he's now shifting focus to himself. He is saying, in essence, you know, hey, do you all remember when I came to you? Do you remember when I showed up on your doorstep and began preaching the gospel? How did I do that? That's kind of what he's saying here. You remember the mode and the method how I came to you and how I preached the gospel to you? He's recalling how he presented the message to the Corinthians way back when he first arrived in, you know, during his second missionary journey. Again, the story of that arrival to Corinth is recorded in Acts chapter 18. We're not going to go there and read it. But it's at the tail end of Paul's second missionary journey. So he is on his second missionary journey. He's finishing up and he's working his way down the, the coast of Greece into Corinth. Uh, he had previously been in Athens, and then before that, Berea. And then before that, Thessalonica. And before that, Philippi. So he had gone along from Philippi to Berea to Thessalonica, and then, or from Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea, then to Athens and to Corinth. So he's working his way down the coast there. 
And if you remember how he went there, when he was in Philippi, he was treated shamefully. He was arrested, thrown in jail, beaten. And then that's when he has that you know, wonderful encounter with the Philippian jailer. But he had been beaten even though he was a Roman citizen. And he actually throws the Roman citizenship card out and says, do you recall, do you remember? He's like, you just beat a Roman citizen. Is that lawful? And they're like, no, that's not lawful. We didn't realize you were a Roman citizen. Sorry, Paul. It's like, yeah, sorry. Yeah, right, sure. And then he goes to Thessalonica. And he's, he has some success there in Thessalonica. But then some Jews get roused up at his message and chase him out of town. So then he goes to Berea and begins to preach there for a few Sabbaths and has some success. But then the Jews from Thessalonica go down to Berea and chase him out of Berea. So then he winds his way up to Athens. And there he is in Athens kind of by himself because uh, Silas and Timothy had to go somewhere else. So he's by himself. And he's in Athens. And then he has that encounter on Mars Hill with the philosopher. So he's, he was beaten. He was thrown in jail. He was... Uh, chased out of town. He was mocked by the philosophers. As usual, he goes to the Jews first, but they oppose and revile him, so then he goes to the Gentiles. And then finally, he makes it to Corinth. After leaving Athens, he comes to Corinth. And he starts to preach there, and he starts to have some success again, but he also gets some resistance, and he's starting to feel a little down. Then he gets a vision from God, says, stay here. Because there are many people that are mine that, that need to be called and you will, have, you will be protected. You will be here for, for many days. So he stayed there for 18 months. And that's what Paul is bringing to mind when he says, do you remember when I came to you? And when Paul came to the Corinthians, he says, I did not come with excellence of speech or of wisdom. When Paul says, that he, when Paul says this, he is referring to the form of and the content of his speech and message. His speech was not, as the Greek says, with excellence of speech. He did not come with lofty words. He did not come with high rhetorical flair. He didn't come to try to impress them with his vocabulary. That was the manner of the philosophers and the sophists. That was the manner of the, of the people that the Corinthians thought were you know, very special, very revered, to be revered, very impressive. These people with their high speech and their lofty ideas, and one of the, you know, they speak to you and you don't understand what they're saying, so you kind of say, well, they must be really smart because I don't understand what they're saying, when in reality they're not really saying anything, and you're right to not understand what they're saying because they're not speaking anything. They use a lot of words and don't say anything, sort of like a politician, right? They could sit there and speak for hours and hours and hours and not say a darn thing of anything of relevance. Their goal was to win arguments, the philosophers and the sophists. That was their goal. That was their, their forte, their strength. Their strength was in persuasive arguments, persuasive speech, winning arguments. Not, not, not even really necessarily promoting any point of view. Right? Just... You know, be able, you know, basically, you know, if you were to look through an ancient Greek pamphlet, you know, come to, to Socrates, you know, school of sophistry, where you can win any argument anytime for $99.99. That would be kind of like what, you know, the sophists would do. Win any argument anytime, just come to my school and pay me the $99.99. That's not how Paul came to them. He didn't come to them with excellence of speech, lofty words, superior 
speaking abilities. If you recall back to chapter 1, verse 17, Paul says, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of no effect. Paul didn't preach the gospel in that manner. And the reason he didn't preach the gospel in that manner because he didn't want to subtract from the gospel message by adding to it with lofty speech. And this is, of course, a call to not only someone like me or any, really any of God's ministers to be, to, this is not a call to be careless or sloppy. Doesn't mean we don't prepare, doesn't mean we don't try to study and don't try to, you know, speak persuasively. But it's like what we see in 1 Timothy 2.15. We need to be approved workmen of the Word of God, handling it with care. Handling it with care, lest we be not ashamed. But we're not to be sloppy or careless in our preaching. It just means that we don't try to fluff up. We don't try to embellish the message. We don't try to use human wisdom to make it more appealing and remove the rough edges of the Gospel. The Gospel has rough edges, right? Gospel is a message that says if you don't believe in Jesus Christ, guess where you're going? You're going to the hot place, right? No one wants to go to the hot place. <laughs> now, some people will say, no, nah, no, nah, you're not going to go to the hot place. We won't, we'll, 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 we won't emphasize the hot place. We'll just emphasize the love of God, the grace of God, the mercy of God. And we won't talk about sin. We won't talk about judgment. We won't talk about having to live a good life. Just come as you are. Come as you are. God accepts you as you are. Sort of. He doesn't leave you where you are, right? You know, yeah, come as you are, but you're not going to leave as you are. That's the point. There's a call to repentance. There's a call to forsake sin. The gospel has rough edges, and we don't want to try to remove them through our fancy speech. Paul simply wanted to declare the testimony of God. And that word there, declare, katangalo, Sounds kind of like an ice cream flavor. Uh, to announce. <laughs> no, it doesn't. I don't just make it stuff up now. <laughs> that got Fred's attention, though. I mentioned ice cream. That got Fred's attention. <laughs> but that word means to declare, to announce, to proclaim, to make known. Paul is a herald. Okay? And what does a herald do? A herald goes forth and announces the message that is given to him. He announces the message of the king. He speaks only those words that are given to him to speak by his master. In Paul's case, God himself. And Paul's message here is a testimony of God, a martyrion, a witness, a, a revelation, if you will, of the testimonies of God. That's what he wants to proclaim, free from any philosophical embellishment. That is what Paul is doing here, not with wisdom, not in wisdom. I come simply to proclaim to you the message of God, the testimonies of God, to declare that faithfully. So now moving on to verse 2. Paul did not want to declare the testimony of God with lofty words and human wisdom, and the reason he gives is found in verse 2. For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Now, we need to break this statement down a little bit and understand it better. First, Paul says, I determined. 
That word there is krino. It means, it means judgment. It could also mean determine. It has a wide range of meanings. Um, depending on which translation you have, I think we kind of have either New King James or ESV here. Uh, if you have New King James, King James, or a New American Standard, it says determined. If you have ESV, it says decided, right? Decided. The NIV says resolved, okay? So you either you're determining, you're deciding, you're, resol- you're making a resolution to do something. This word occurs 114 times in the New Testament, and it usually means to judge. So it's a word that means to decide, determine, make distinctions, to judge, to rule, to govern, all of those things here. And Paul here is making a determination. I am making a resolution to do something. He is setting his face in a particular direction and to turn neither to the right nor the left. And what is it that Paul do? To know nothing except Christ crucified. Now this is hyperbole, right? This is, Paul is speaking in hyperbolic language here when he says that. It's not like he's trying to communicate that literally the only thing he preached was the words, Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Right? You know, he goes to the Corinthians. Good morning. Welcome to the church of Corinth. And I'm here to preach to you. And the word and the message is Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Be blessed. Have a nice day. See you next Lord's Day. Then the next Lord's Day. Good morning. Welcome to the church in Corinth. I'm here to preach to you. Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Be blessed. Have a wonderful day. We'll see you the next Lord. That's not what Paul is saying. Okay? He didn't literally only say those words. But as we saw in verse 1, where he says, I did not come with you to you with excellence of speech, or in verse 17 of chapter 1, where I did not preach the gospel with wisdom of words. Paul's goal in declaring the testimony of God was to do so without any pomp or fluff. Paul wanted to cut through all of the sophistry, all of the fancy speech, all the philosophical double talk, and proclaim the pure, unadulterated gospel of Jesus Christ. And in saying nothing except Jesus and Him crucified, Paul again is being hyperbolic. Obviously, Paul did more than just talk about the, the, the you know, walk around declaring those words. He, he preached the central focus was the gospel. Just like in chapter 1, verse 23, where he says here, um, we preach Christ crucified to Jews a stumbling block and to Greeks foolishness. The singular focus of Paul's message was the Gospel. The one that caused unbelieving Jews to stumble. The one that caused unbelieving Greeks to scoff. And that phrase there, the, the Jesus Christ and Him crucified, is a summary way of saying, I will preach the Gospel. Only the Gospel. And nothing but the Gospel. So anyway, the central message then of the Gospel is Jesus Christ and Him crucified. So when Paul says, I resolve to preach nothing to you than Jesus Christ and Him crucified, he's just saying, I resolve to only give you the core of the Gospel message. You are going to get the Gospel. This is what it's all about. It is about the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. How He died for your sins. How He was raised for your justification. But it also includes the whole counsel of God, right? Not just like the Gospel records, right? We have a whole Bible here, right? There's a lot of words in here. There's a lot of stuff in here. 
and, and most of it, if you, you know, if you go to where in you know, my Bible the, the, the Old Testament is, okay, so that's like most of the book right there, and it doesn't mention the word Jesus. Now, it talks about him, but it doesn't mention the word Jesus. So when Paul says, Jesus Christ, him crucified, yes, the central message of the gospel, but also including the whole counsel of God, because Jesus Christ himself said that the entire Bible testifies to me. He told that to the Jewish people in John chapter 5. Search your scriptures and you will see that the scriptures that you so revere testify about me. He told the two disciples on the road to Emmaus after the resurrection when they're sad and he says, look, you know, you're slow to understand that the Christ had to die. And then he tells them from Moses and the prophets how everything pointed to him. And then they say after Jesus left, did not our hearts burn within us as he opened to us the scriptures? So the entire Bible testifies to Christ. And in saying I determined not to know anything except, Paul is making a couple of points. First, until the gospel works powerfully in a person's life by the working of the Holy Spirit, there's little use teaching anything else. But secondly, because of what we see in verse 14 of this chapter, right? The natural man does not know the things of God because they are spiritually discerned. They are foolishness to him. Because of what we see in verse 14, there's no point in trying to argue someone into the kingdom. Adding philosophy or signs and wonders won't do anything to convince a closed and darkened heart and mind. As one commentator wrote on this said, Paul had the gospel with its crucified Messiah as his singular focus and passion while he was among them, among the Corinthians, that is. So Paul resolves to do nothing except to preach this gospel message to them. That's how he came to them, not with lofty words, but only with the message of Jesus Christ and him crucified. And now finally, verses 3-5, through five, Paul says, I came not in wisdom, but in the Spirit and power. So Paul, Paul not only did not come with excellence of words or of wisdom, but rather with, uh, he came with weakness and fear and in much trembling. Look at verse 3. And I was with you in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling. That's how Paul came to them. He's like, look, I didn't come with you in wisdom of words. I came to you shaking. I was fearful. I was trembling. I came to you in weakness. Paul is shifting a bit here. Earlier he was speaking about how he delivered the message. Now he seems focused on how he himself appeared as he delivered the message. Weakness. Fear. Trembling. This is hardly impressive, right? You know, someone... That's like what a first-year seminary student does when he goes behind the pulpit. You know, he's gripping the pulpit and it's shaking and he's kind of just like, and now I preached you the Word of God. I'm not going to look up at you because I'm very fearful and I'm weak and I'm trembling. That's a first-year seminary student. I know that because I was a first-year seminary student. <laughs> and I remember my first sermon. I was weak, fearful, and trembling. <laughs> For a society that valued persuasive speech, lofty wisdom, confident delivery, for Paul to say that he was weak and fearful and trembling among them doesn't inspire confidence 
in the gospel or gospel ministers, does it? Now, let's consider again what Paul has been saying ever since chapter 1, verse 18. He says, the message of the cross is foolish and weak. The people of the cross are foolish and weak. And now here, the messenger of the cross is foolish and weak. It's a little bit of a pattern here, right? <laughs> I'm, I'm sensing a pattern, right? I don't need to have a college education to sense a pattern here that the message is foolish and weak, the, the recipients, the people are foolish and weak, and that the messenger is foolish and weak. When Paul says he was in weakness among them, he is underscoring how he didn't come before the Corinthians in the same way as their sophists and their philosophers. It's just this weak little guy named Paul. Probably couldn't see very well. Probably kind of a short guy. Most Jews were short. He was probably no exception among them. Preaching this weak and foolish message of the cross to weak and foolish Corinthians. And again, to further add Paul's, to Paul's weakness, again, consider the path that he took to get to Corinth. He was beaten and arrested in Philippi, as we said earlier, right? He was chased out of Thessalonica and Berea by, ang by an angry mob. Then he was mocked by philosophers on Mars Hill. Not exactly a winning track record, <laughs> right? You know, you're coming to Corinth and you're trying to impress a group of people that are impressed by philosophers and sophists. And they say, well, what, what is your resume? Well, I was beaten in Philippi. And I went to Thessalonica and Berea and they chased me out of town. And then I went to Athens. Oh, well, really, Athens? How'd it go there? Well, they mocked me. <laughs> and now I'm here among you guys. Oh, yeah, okay. Uh, well, thank you for applying for the position of pastor of our church. Uh, uh, we'll call you. Don't call us, okay? It's kind of what's going on there. Hardly a winning track record by the world's standards, of course. Yet, these are the means that God uses, right? These are the means that God uses, not only to confound the mighty and wise, and proud, but also as a judgment on their strength and wisdom and pride. Again, remember, the gospel message accomplishes its goal when it's rejected, because that is a sign of judgment. If, if the weak, I mean, if the strong and the wise and the, and the proud reject the gospel message, that is their judgment. The gospel is doing its work if it's rejected by them. And this idea of concept of fear and much trembling is Paul's way of, in a sense, staying grounded. There is a Puritan writer named John Knox. Uh, he once said, I have never once feared the devil, but I tremble every time I enter the pulpit. Right? Never once feared the devil, because what can he do to me? But I fear, that's John Knox, I fear every time, I tremble every time I walk behind the pulpit. Why? Because he's delivering the word of God. And he's got to do so in an approved manner, right? He's got to do so in a way that honors God, not brings honor to himself. And why not? As Paul says elsewhere, but we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us, 2 Corinthians 4, 7. That's what Paul says. He says, we are the earthen vessels. We are the clay jars. In fact, there was a band called Jars of Clay, a Christian contemporary band called Jars of Clay. We are the clay earthen pots. That means nothing special. 
We're nothing special, but inside of that clay pot is the treasure, and that treasure is the gospel. And that's what I need you guys to remind me of. I'm a clay jar, <laughs> right? I am a clay jar, and I need you guys to remember to remind me that whenever I begin to get a little too cocky, a little too comfortable in the pulpit, I am a clay pot. Please don't make me a clay pot. <laughs> <laughs> I knew it the minute I, I wrote that in here. I was like, those wheels would be turning the, ma- the moment I... <laughs> He's already plotting, isn't he? Yeah, okay. You're too late. I'm too late. <laughs> All right, well, I'll take a clay jar. That's fine. Paul concludes in verses 4 and 5. And my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Again here, Paul is being hyperbolic because we aren't to conclude that Paul had no desire to be persuasive or clear in his proclamation. Again, you know, some people take this to say, well, okay, I don't have to be prepared. I just need to preach you know, the gospel. I don't have to study and make sure I get everything down right and make sure I'm persuasive. I just say these words and the power. Yeah, that can happen. But also we need to persuasively and eloquently present the message as long as the, pers- you know, the eloquence and the persuasion are to promote the message, not ourselves. Okay? That's what one um, commentator says here. Paul is thus willing to employ human eloquence, for this is intrinsically neutral as long as it remains subservient to the message of the gospel and the divine work of the Spirit. So he uses the persuasive words to promote the message, not to promote himself. The sophists and the philosophers use the persuasive words to promote themselves because they didn't care about the message. Remember, win any argument, any side, doesn't matter. 99-99, okay, you can do it. Join my school. No, I mean, pastors, we take classes in preaching and homiletics so that we can clearly and persuasively preach the gospel. We certainly don't want to be dull, tedious, and unintelligible, right? I mean, how good would that be if I was up there in the pulpit and I was dull every Sunday putting you guys to sleep or if I was tedious just saying the same things over and over and over again? Kind of like the guy from Ferris Bueller's Day Off, you know, just Bueller, Bueller, you know, preaching like that. Jesus crucified. <laughs> you know, I mean, that would, you know, th- that would empty a church pretty fast, I think, if the pastor was tedious and unintelligible. But again, the goal is not to display our wisdom. The goal is not to display our eloquence. Did you see that movie, Mark? Or, or is that a. Oh, okay, good. So I just wanted to make sure it wasn't a reference that fell on deaf ears back there. <laughs> uh, the goal is not to display our wisdom or eloquence or persuasiveness, but to put forth the gospel eloquently, persuasively, and with wisdom. But here, Paul says, preaching is always done, always done in a demonstration of the Spirit and of power. And that is the only way lives are changed, is through the power of the Spirit using the words of the Gospel to change lives. To change lives. 
And the reason Paul didn't embellish the message of the cross, as he says in verse 5, is so that, that's the main purpose clause there, for the very purpose that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. So if Paul came like he, any of the other philosophers did, you know, these dime store sophists and, sophists and philosophers, then he would have built a following for himself. If Paul came like that, that would be what Paul's goal would be, to build a following for himself. But that's why Paul didn't do that. He didn't want followers or disciples of Paul. He didn't want to build the church of Paul. Paul wanted to build the church of Jesus Christ. He wanted people converted by the power of God to be disciples of Christ, not people persuaded by the wisdom of Paul to be his own followers. And that's what makes these divisions in the church so detestable because it detracts from the power of the gospel and puts the spotlight on men and not on God. Well, what we have here as we wrap up, again, I mentioned this last week, but kind of what you have here is this, this continual battle between what has been called before the theology of glory versus the theology of the, of the cross. The theology of glory is where, you know, we're the hero in our story, right? You know, we're the, the knight in shining armor. We're the ones that go out and because of our superior intelligence and wisdom, you know, we find the right path. We save ourselves by dint of our own strength and everything. And versus that is the theology of the cross. It says that glory comes first, or comes, I should say, after suffering. The road to glory goes through suffering. The road to the consummation goes through the cross. Jesus Christ was glorified after he went to the cross. He was tempted to skip the cross and take the glory for himself as Satan was, was tempting him. But that's not the route he took. He went to the cross. And the reason he went to the cross is because of the joy that was set before him, Hebrews 12.2. So as we wrap this up, um, next time, the 28th Lord willing, we will look, probably finish chapter 2, look at verses 6 through 16.